0: We are outdoor ladies who hunt, shoot, and fish, all while working in conservation and chasing kids. I am Julia Pluge with the Nebraska Game
1: and Parks Commission. I'm Rachel Alice with the Iowa Department of Natural Resources. And I'm Tana Fancher
2: with the Kansas Department of Wildlife Parks. Follow us on our outdoor adventures.
0: Welcome back to She Goes Outdoors. Tana and Rachel, it seems like it's been forever since we, uh, the three of us been together for a single episode. So I'm excited to see your faces. Uh, Welcome back. You know, before we jump into this week's topic, why don't you share what kept you from the microphone? Tana, what have you been doing?
2: Oh man. Um, So Kansas recently transitioned to remote work. So we've been a little bit busy just trying to make that transition possible, Um, Unfortunately, due to the uptick in the Delta variant, we, um, our leadership decided that was the safest route for us. So that's kept me a little bit busy. Um, Also just transitioning into the fall, Kansas has made the decision to postpone all of our current hunter education classes that are in person. So we're looking at some additional options to make sure that we can uh, deliver that hunter education content to our constituents in some other form or fashion. So stay tuned for that, but that's mostly what we've been getting into. Rachel, what about you? Oh man, it uh,
1: it gets <laughs> summed up in three words. Iowa State Fair. We've, uh-huh. uh, we were so excited to see everyone out at the fairgrounds this year. We have a pretty open building, so we we continued as normal and were able to have our BB gun range and and our fish and and just welcome folks out to the fair. So that's what's uh kept me pretty busy the last few weeks. So um, we've now shut it down for another season. Back to the microphone and excited to to talk about t- today's topic,
0: Rachel. I've been spending time at the fair just like you. Well, Nebraska State Fair. We actually just closed the doors on our state fair on Labor Day, so it is. Fresh, freshly completed. Uh, we also had a pellet gun o- range open. Saw a lot of smiling faces, so excited. Well, we had masks on, so you could see a lot of uh, eyes that were giving you that smile look. Smiles. Nice. Uh, yeah, we also had a, a big aquarium open, so it was it was great as we transitioned safely into normal. I guess we could say normalizing. Um, Also getting ready for a number of other fall events. So it's just, it's been crazy and, but it's, it's glad to be, I'm glad to be back on the microphone with you. As we move into September, September 1 kicked off a lot of hunting seasons here in Nebraska. I've been watching the Facebook world and seeing a lot of dove hunters. Our teal season opened up in Nebraska and I think The same goes for your states where September 1 opened up a lot of hunting opportunities. And I just happened to be reading our Facebook posts and our She Goes Outdoors email account one day. And I caught a message, caught my attention from someone and I recognized the name. And this individual was talking about. Um, big game hunting big game and enjoys the hunting world and as I it like finally dawned on me that I I know this individual I know the, this this person and I wanted to uh, bring her on to our show and and have a conversation and interview her about her experience because uh, what she does here in Nebraska is it's perhaps maybe unusual and so I wanted her to share her story so, you know, our guest today is Jenny Prentice-Sill, wears different hats in the world of conservation. So I know Jenny to wear her official career title hat with Pheasants Forever. So I am uh, would love for her to introduce herself and, and talk about what she does for Habitat and Pheasants Forever. And so in addition, we're going to Uh, Talk to her more so when she's wearing her camouflage hat, too, in the world of hunting. On her email message, she was talking about pronghorn hunting, and it is the season right now in Nebraska. And so, again, that's why we're bringing her to the microphone, and just to pick her brain about her, have her share her story in the hunting world, hopefully draw some interest into some of our listeners perhaps wanting to try pronghorn hunting themselves. As an inspired pronghorn hunter myself, I wanted I want to hear her stories. Ginny, let's start talking about One Hat at a Time. Uh, please introduce yourself and tell us about your role with Presence Forever. Julia,
3: thanks for having me on this morning. I'm happy to talk about, yeah, both my conservation career and uh, just my, my passion for the outdoors, hunting, uh, and everything that comes along with it. I've been working as a Wildlife biologist with Pheasants Fiber since 2015, um, right after I graduated with my master's degree uh, from UNK, University of Nebraska Kearney, whose mascot, by the way, is the lopers. So gotta, gotta throw that pitch in there. So I've been working with Pheasants Fiber for a little over six years now. I started off as a farm bill biologist, and for about three years, my role was covering like a 10-county area. And my primary duties was working one-on-one with landowners and help getting them to do conservation work. Um, A lot of those were federal farm bill programs administered by the USDA. So uh, CRP is a huge one that's very popular. Everyone kind of knows what that is. And you plant, uh, you know, permanent vegetation in the crop ground. Um, But then I did a lot of other stuff too, like EQIP. um, And these are all just acronyms, but there's programs all over the place um, which helps do you know wildlife friendly grazing plans, putting in some grazing infrastructure to make conservation friendly grazing a little bit easier for the landowners, removing invasive species like eastern red cedar and locusts, um, and just kind of all other other things as far as habitat uh, management goes. And then in 2018, I transitioned into a role as a coordinating wildlife biologist, which brought me to Lincoln, um, where I'm based out of, and I provide more of a statewide role, where I um, kind of provide support to our biologists statewide, um, who are implementing the Farm Bill programs. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of weeds when it comes to some of the rules and regulations, and so I try to help keep them all straight while learning them myself. And I do still get out and work one-on-one with landowners from time to time. a little bit of everything, but it's been really, it's been a huge, hugely awesome, hugely awesome career so far. I get a lot of satisfaction going out and seeing a project being completed and just the wildlife response and the landowners saying, yeah, I'll take my grandson out. We're going to go walk for quail. I haven't seen quail in so many years and all those things. Jenny, is this something
2: you always knew you wanted to do? Oftentimes on this podcast, we joke about the uh, winding roads that tended to bring us to our current careers. Did you always see yourself in that role? I
3: didn't know that I'd end up in private lands conservation, but from like day one, I remember being, you know, a little five-year-old kid. My favorite shows were like Zaboomafoo, and wild discovery and those kinds of things. And I was really disappointed when our school books didn't have an animal in them. So I knew I wanted to do something with wildlife from the beginning. It just took me a while to figure out, okay, school to go to. I figured that out. I got a major Started volunteering with the local game of parks, getting some summer interns with various agencies. And then uh, just kind of happened to fall into pheasants forever, So everything just kind of fell into place like it was supposed to, I guess.
1: A couple of really important things for folks that are are possibly or are remotely thinking about getting into the field: just that that connection with you know, volunteering, getting out there, getting boots on the ground and getting your hands dirty, trying different things, because it's kind of a reoccurring theme that the the three of us had no no idea how we would end up in this role. You know, they were all different, weird, uh, crazy turns. And only by doing and getting out and trying different things did we have a clue what direction we wanted to go. So you bring up some really great points. And And the other one I wanted to mention was with all three of our states being so privately held um, as far as land access goes, just having that connection with the with the local landowners and, and really talking conservation on the ground um, it is so imperative. And, and the work that the Farmville Biologists do across the states within the wildlife world is, is just, it's awesome. For those of us like myself that might've grown up on the coast and, and really had no concept of, of just the vast acreages of of land that are out in the Midwest. It's insane, you know, when you when you hear the numbers of acres some people own. And and so to to get them with a conservation mindset where wildlife and row crops can go hand in hand is is such a is such a cool story to hear when when people make that connection. Um, Like you mentioned, you know, a grandfather taking his grandson or granddaughter out because he hasn't seen that game in in years. So it's, it's pretty cool, but I'll get off my, my uh, soapbox here. And Julia kind of mentioned that you wear a couple different hats and in addition to your kind of love and and professional um, focus on conservation, you're also a, a, sounds like a pretty big pronghorn hunter. And before we really get into that, we like to share with our, with our listeners how our guests got involved in, in their passion. So for you as hunting, like how did you get started in this world?
3: I guess I'll start off saying I'm definitely not an expert pronghorn hunter. <laughs> I still have a lot of learning to go before I even get it to pronghorn. I have to just start off with just hunting in general. I was fortunate where I grew up in a family where my dad was a big, big game hunter. And so was my grandfather. So I, I kind of grew up in the culture The only piece of taxidermy that was in our house for the longest time was a pronghorn. (laughs) And so from like day one, that's been in my parents' house for as long as I can remember. Um, So I just remember always seeing that and just thinking, oh, this is just the coolest thing ever. But my dad's a farmer and pronghorn season, the rifle traditional season is in October, which usually corresponds with uh, harvest. And so pronghorn hunting for himself or even getting me into it just didn't happen. What he did get me into was huge was deer hunt. Uh, when I turned 12, I shot my first deer and was all excited about it. Um, my grandpa took me out turkey hunting a couple of times growing up. But really, that was kind of where it started. It was just rifle deer hunting. Um, but I still had these different interests. You know, like I'm like, oh, well, I'd love to try archery. You know, what's what's that all about? What's a bow hunting? Um, I got a bow, but I never went hunting. Um, I wanted to try duck hunting, I want to do all these different things. Then I went to college. Hunting got put on the back burner a little bit. I went back every year for the rifle season to hang out with my dad and grandpa and everybody. I still had, you know, just a longing to try more, different game, different types, you know, archery versus rifle. Started my master's program and then enters into My life, my biggest hunting mentor would be Eric, who eventually became my husband. (laughs) Uh, I met him and we just got talking, you know, after class one day and we just started connecting. I'm like, I'll take you duck hunting. I'm like, okay. (laughs) And so um, he was, he's been a huge mentor from the beginning. And when he told me he bow hunts and then also does black powder muzzleloader hunting, I was like, oh, that's something that I've been interested in and I've never done, I've never even really heard much of muzzleloader hunting. Let's, let's give that a whirl. And so with him, I actually harvested my first doe with him, which was with my bow. Um, I harvested my first doe with my rifle with him. I bought my first firearm, which was a muzzleloader. That really started going. We picked up the shotguns. We started doing waterfowl hunting and upland game hunting. Him, you know, he took me on my first Pronghorn hunt and actually he's been on all of those hunts with me so far. And yeah, we've made the most of it. So I, I do have to credit him a lot. You know, he really got me going as a great mentor, you know, but I'd also like to think, especially over the last several years, I've become independent and I feel really good that, you know, I can go out and do this by myself as well. You know, so, and then I'm also starting, you know, the verge of, you know, the R3, you know, taking other people with me, whether it's, you know, it's a lot easier when you live in Lincoln to go out pheasant hunting or dove hunting than it is to take someone out, you know, out West mule deer hunting. and So cool that you bring up your husband.
1: For listeners, I'm going to do a spoiler alert. If they want to read more about this, I did find a really great article that Jenny wrote um, that we'll share with our listeners so they can kind of hear a little bit more about that backstory. It's super cute, kind of a fun find. So thanks for sharing with us, Jenny.
3: Um, I just think it's so important to, to share, you know, whoever that mentor was, whether it was your dad, your significant other, a friend. I mean, hunting is a super individual thing, but it's also a big culture community. You know, you can really connect with people and, A lot of the best memories are just, you know, the silly things you talk about back at camp.
2: (laughs) I love that. And Jenny, I think your story resonates with a lot of women. Um, I know one of the biggest ways that my partner and I connect is getting out into the outdoors and going hunting, doing all these things. So um, I think a lot of our listeners will connect with that in some way. So, I'm curious as we've been talking about pronghorns, and obviously, Jenny, you think they're super cool critters and also enjoy hunting them. Maybe we should spend some time just learning about the pronghorn in general. So, I know that pronghorns are part of the ungulate family, meaning they're um, of the diverse clade ungulata, which primarily consists of large animals with hooves. That includes odd toed ungulates like horses, rhinos, and even some even toed ungulates like cattle, pigs, giraffes, camels, sheep, deer etc. So that's about the extent of my knowledge on uh, pronghorns. I also know that pronghorns require huge grazing areas and that in Kansas we sometimes refer to them as speed goats. So Jenny, what else is there
3: to know about pronghorn? Oh that's just the tip of the iceberg. Not only are pronghorn just awesome, they're probably easily top five favorite animals of everything. If not, maybe one of my favorites but one, one thing to start off with is, too, you, you mentioned an ungulate group. They're actually the only extant member of the Antolo Capridae family. Um, and if anyone's ever spent some time in Morrill Hall on UNL campus, um, they have, you know, fossils of the other species that used to roam North America back, you know, Ice Age and such. So they're kind of loners, as far as that goes, are the only, they're literally the very unique they shed their horns every year but they still have like a piece that doesn't shed so that you know they shed their horns which is unusual for anything that has horns horns usually stay on antler sheds um you know if you're lucky enough you can you know after season you know they'll drop their prongs and you can shed hunt those although they're kind of made of more of a coarse hair almost or a very weird material I'm not totally sure what they are um, yeah. And just,
0: to, oh, and just quickly to point out to, if anyone is listening, not familiar, the difference that deer have antlers. So they do shed them completely once a year. And if you want, you can go back and listen to our episode uh, when we were talking about shed hunting. Whereas pronghorn, they have the horn similar to, oh, even like cows have horns, but cows don't shed the horn. Antelope pronghorn do. And it is, it's just like, it's one big piece of hair is what a horn is. Super, um, super cool how that all works out in the mammal world.
2: Well, in case anybody's wondering, I am still winning the shed hunting contest. Just let the record show. Um, (laughs) Antlers are like more of a bony protrusion. Is that right? And then whereas horns are made of like keratin or the material that your fingernails are made out of.
3: I think you mentioned this already, but you know, they're the, the fastest... You know, mammal in North America. I think the cheetah outdo them. I'm not sure I've seen kind of conflicting, you know, who's, who's saying what for top speeds. Um, but supposedly, you know, the pronghorn developed their speed, you know, to get away from predators. Right now, they're kind of found in like the very Western states Wyoming, Montana, Colorado, New Mexico, with some populations in Nebraska. I think North Dakota, for sure, South Dakota, Kansas, maybe Texas, Oklahoma. I'm not positive on that kind of tier of states. Um, looking at some records, I believe there's they were found almost as far east as possibly Gage County, Nebraska. I'm not sure, you know, if you know the truth on that or who if that was Lewis and Clark or who that was that reported that. I think that was all in Morrill Hall. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, now they're kind of only found in the east, the western third of the state of Nebraska. And so they were really kind of a, a short grass prairie critter, maybe a little bit of mixed grass prairie because they did come in further east. Um, but I don't believe historically they would have gone as far as Iowa. They rely a lot on their site as their main kind of defense mechanism. They see a predator they can run and get away very, very easily, very quickly. Um, and so when you start getting into taller vegetation that would come with a tall grass prairie, they probably avoided a lot of that cover. And even now you can kind of see them kind of avoid that taller structures when you're out on Western Nebraska, just watching them, or if you're hunting them, wherever there's cornfields they stay away from cornfields. They won't go anywhere near that. But what they do like is the cut wheat fields. And I've seen that on a potato field, you know, short, short vegetation, things like that, you know, again, it's because they, they have to be able to see where they're going. They can be migratory. I know there's more established migratory routes found in the more Western states. Wyoming, Colorado, Montana would have more established migratory routes. Don't know much about the Nebraska pronghorn. There, I suspect they would be somewhat migratory, just based on observations and conversations I've had with other people. Um, but in reality, we actually don't know a whole lot about their movement. I believe UNL is, has started some research projects with Game and Parks to just, you know, see what see what they're doing, see what they're up to, see where they're going. And I believe it all just started this summer. So it's super new, and um, and then their behavior too—they're just incredible, cool behaviored animals. They typically, you know, they'll be off on their own as an individual when they are fawning in the spring, summer. Um, but as fall comes around, uh, the females start to herd up. Part of that's due to a, you'll get a dominant male, a buck, who will start, and they call it his harem. He'll kind of keep his his ladies in check. Um, and then he'll protect those and defend those from other bucks you know the more inferior bucks and that is kind of called the rut that's going to be happening here kind of end of september as we get more into the winter and fall they really start to herd up and travel together Um, and then they'll start the whole process again you know kind of dispersing next spring going more into their fawning grounds once you kind of understand the herd mentality you know it helps you when you are trying to hunt them or even watch them okay There's a lot of eyes, you know, and then just if you ever worked with horses or other herd animals, just kind of that natural kind of psychology that you get with herd animals. Um, And then knowing that the males are very protective of their harems, you can try using some of those things to your advantage when you're you're trying to get close to them. Or if you, especially if you'd want to harvest your heart set on harvesting a buck versus a doe or whatever, but kind of knowing some of those subtle differences can help. I have seen them jump. I have seen them jump before, um, but they hardly ever jump. I think their anatomy is maybe not quite set up that way, but they always go under a fence and they tend to go under a fence the same area all the time. If you kind of walk up and down a fence line, you can probably eventually start to figure out the trails of where they're going under and they'll just hang out and go one by one waiting for friends to get under the fence until their turns. That's so
2: fascinating. Well, and we do need to give a shout out to you because our friends with the National Wildlife Federation have some great resources if you're interested in learning more about pronghorn. Um, so if you go to their website at www.nwf.org educational resources, there's a wildlife guide available where you can learn more about um, all kinds of different mammals and pronghorn specifically. So go check that out from our friends at the National Wildlife Federation. So Jenny, something we talked about uh, before the episode started was the relationship between landowners and pronghorn. So do landowners like having pronghorn on their land for the most part, or are they seen as more of a
3: nuisance species? In general, um, especially from landowners I've met with, the majority of them see them more of a nuisance. Part of that is they go out on their crop fields. Uh, they can do some damage that way, especially when you get into maybe the winter months where they're all congregating in their larger herds, you know, and, you know, actively growing wheat fields, it could be a little bit of a problem. Um, so in general, most landowners don't seem to really care a lot for them or maybe they're very indifferent um, it's very different asking for permission to hunt pronghorn than it is hunting for deer <laughs> um, people seem to be pretty protective of their deer but uh pronghorn they're pretty i think i've only been turned down once and that was because the previous hunter had driven on his wheat field which is a huge no big no-no <laughs> for anyone. So FYI, don't drive on the farmer's wheat fields.
0: It's so ironic to me how different the pronghorn is to deer. I mean, you look at the two, you would think that they are similar, so similar, other than just a few features physically, but they're not. Like, you know, we talk about the habitat that pronghorn live in. It's, it's opposite of deer where pronghorn are out in the day you know like we talked about to protect themselves from uh, predators where deer are protecting themselves from predators by coming out at night so it's just so cool how these creatures are so different in different ways i gotta know though where is your like where do you go in nebraska then jenny where where <laughs> are you spot? at <laughs> yeah where's your spot huh so nebraska's i mean if you're not familiar with the state we've talked about it a lot we have we have corn here in eastern nebraska we have obviously we've talked about the habitat that's not where the uh antelope want to be because they don't feel safe then you go clear out west and that's their sweet spot. I'm guessing, Jenny, you're out west somewhere hunting. Tell us about that. I haven't
3: found like my spot yet. I'm still been kind of going all over, trying different parts of the panhandle. I've been focusing on the panhandle. So I've hunted, you know, kind of northern panhandle, central panhandle. And in this fall, I'm hoping to get out and do a little bit in the southern panhandle. Unfortunately, I haven't made it up to the ogle all the grasslands yet. That is a goal to get up there and hunt them. Um, so I hear that's just a kind of a, its own experience in itself. It's a huge, intact, protected grassland, and it's all public access. Um, but so no, mostly what I've been hunting has been private lands and a lot of actually field row crops kind of interspersed with some rangeland. It doesn't really sound like pronghorn air habitat, but uh, they do go out on those areas to feed and loaf and hang out. Um, And as long as you're not around any corn, which there's not a ton of corn out in the panhandle, you know, a fair amount of CRP out in the panhandle as well.
0: Um, There is still some rangeland. How about we lead into you just telling us about your first pronghorn hunt? And I'm guessing it is with your, was it with your husband?
3: Yep, it was. So maybe first, maybe first I'll mention, you know, how the tags work in Nebraska. So the October firearm season, which is where you can harvest the buck, I think on the last year's tag, you said buck or doe. Um, but it's the rifle season is in October. It's about three weeks. They, that goes off of a draw. And so if you don't draw, you'll get a point. So you get extra points. So it takes it can take several years to draw before you can actually have a tag for that October season. They also draw for the muzzleloader season. Muzzleloader season is actually in September. So then they'll draw for both of those seasons. Um, and then they'll open up you know, leftover tags and then the other season tags whenever they open up the rest of the game, big game permits. And so the other seasons we have is we have the late doe or antler list season. So doe fawn season that spans the months of November, December, January. That's a first come, first serve basis. And it seems like tags sell out every year, especially if you're not on kind of that first day that they're going on sale. And then our archery tags are all over the counter. So, so far, I've only had experience rifle hunting them. I'm, my first antelope hunting experience was my husband and I got on and we purchased the late doe season tags. And so he had done it one other time before with a buddy of his. So he had kind of an area figured out. And um, so we, we called the Game of Parks and got a list of some depredation sites. And some of those were similar sites that he had been on before. And we headed out in December. You know, it was kind of our Christmas break during school And we spent, I don't remember how many days we were out there, but we went out, you know, maybe not, it was probably four, probably four days, three or four days um, and went out, you know, early morning. So we were hunting them really in the midst of the winter timeframe. So during this time, they're really congregated. They're really herded up in their winter herds. And so we got permission on several guys' properties um, and they were all super friendly. They were great and even said, yeah, I think, you know, they're usually hanging around here about this time every day so it's like awesome <laughs> you know it's good to hear um that's helpful useful information and so we got to this huge it was like five pivots large just this huge winter wheat field and uh there has a there was not as there's a and there was probably a couple inches of snow on the ground and so it was cold um my my toes were cold everything was cold and um yeah, we just kind of watched this herd, you know, we did drive around and looked for other herds, you know, on other properties we had permission for, but we got to this one with the big five pits and, uh, we just kind of watched them for a while. Okay. What's, you know, what are we, you know, what's the, is there any way we can sneak up on these guys knowing that, you know, it's mostly flat ground, you know, we had some hay bales, uh, pivot tires to hide behind. Um, otherwise you're kind of up out in the open and they're out in the open, you know, there's hard to Close the gap, you know, and you know as hunting season goes on, they get more wary. And you know, they see a pickup truck, and they'll run right away. So you have to be, even be careful. Of, okay, where do we stop and get out and park? But they run really fast, and your opportunity is you know very very minimal if they don't stop. Um, and I'm not I'm not one that's super confident with shooting things on the run. I know some people are, but you know, I didn't really get any shots off, you know, and we did this first, you know, a couple days, you know, kind of the same routine, drive around, look at the herd, see which herd looked like we could get the, the best sneak up on them. And then if we found a herd that was that way, we would try to get up and sneak and set up. Um, and then one big thing I learned from that year's hunt was uh, the ground was pretty frozen, you know, it was winter, it was hard and we're crawling, you know, cause we're trying to crawl with our slings, our rifles on our back. Trying to go from one pivot tire to the next pivot tire to try to close that gap. And my knees were super bruised because I'm crawling on ice. It was horrible. Like I couldn't even kneel on the bed at night. I'm like, oh my gosh, my knees hurt so bad. Um, so we purchased some knee pads for future. (laughs) So there's, you know, there's my equipment plug. Go get a pair of knee pads. (laughs) (laughs) Protect your knees. (laughs) By the end of that week, my husband. Did end up harvesting his dough. That first year, I actually did not harvest an antelope. You know, I, and we did go out, you know, another weekend, we took another long weekend a couple weeks later to try the same thing again. But I just, it just wasn't in the stars for me that year. Um, but what it did do was, oh heck yeah, this is awesome. I loved it. <laughs> My husband's like, really? And like, or the, we were dating at the time, I was like, really? I'm like, oh yeah, I love it. We're doing this again. The next year we did the same thing, but um his dad and His brother also bought tags to turn into a little like a hunting party that next year we had. Oh, I think there was almost three foot of snow at places where it dripped. And then again, my husband harvested and his brother harvested, but they were like a mile and a half in, you know, knee deep snow. And they had to go pull those out. (laughs) And then the last day that year, you know, everyone had their antelope except me. (laughs) Um, And there was just kind of like the last morning, like, okay, this is it. You know, it's going to happen or it's not. There was a herd. Just, they just happened to be. I just had to crawl up over this ridge. so I crawled and uh, had to get my adrenaline under control, but took a deep breath and then harvested my first antelope. So it took. It didn't happen the first trip. It happened the second trip. So satisfying. Something I'd been wanting to do since I, you know, look since I was like five, looking at my dad's, you know, taxidermy Mountain in the living room. So and it finally it finally came together for me. And then yeah, then I had the bug and.
0: I just keep going out. Nice. Congratulations. That's that's a great story. Yeah. Uh, I love how it, you know, your first time out was a learning lesson of make sure you have knee pads and you had the knee pads the next time. And (laughs) they're always packed, (laughs) right? It's just those little things. And every time you go out, whether you're a novice to the field or experienced, there's always something that you learn to make the next trip better.
2: Absolutely. So Jenny, it sounds like you had a really magical experience and I know, um, you know, from my personal experience, I'm kind of an adult onset hunter. I've only gotten into it in the past couple of years. And that harvest is something that's really exciting. It's really personal, but it seems like every hunt, there's a special moment in it. That's like, no, this isn't when I harvested the animal, but this was a magical moment for whatever reason. Can you tell us about your favorite moment of your antelope hunts so far outside of the actual harvest
3: itself? Let me, let me think here. There's There's a lot of just good things. I guess actually probably the one that was most recent was where I drew um, the October season last fall Um, and I was unsuccessful in harvesting anything. It was it was one of those hunting seasons that just everything that could go wrong did go wrong just especially when it came to antelope hunting we just we weren't seeing the animals they just weren't there and when they were there we couldn't get a stock on them there's just no way they weren't cooperating and then finally I got set up and uh, was on the property line I was just waiting for that antelope to cross a property line and I was just waiting and waiting and waiting and just it, he wouldn't come closer he got close and I'm like just 20 more yards please <laughs> like come on just sitting there just watching him you know he's a young buck I, don't think he think I thought I was there he just, just wasn't interested in going my direction um, but that was probably maybe the closest I'd ever been to to an antelope. Um, the other shots I've taken on antelope have been you know 200 yards or so I mean they, they're far out shots um, but this guy got within you know under 100 under 100 yards so you know, this is the closest I've ever been to one and uh, just I was just kind of watching him just you know kind of looking at me. Or not just kind of looking in my direction, and you know, looking behind him and just really got to watch his behavior for a while. And I just thought that was, you know, I just kind of had to take a moment and be like, you know, it's not about the harvest. It's about, you know, I'm this close to one of the fastest animals in the world. And he has no idea I'm here. And that's just something to enjoy. And so eventually he moved the other way. And there was I kind of knew he was he was gone. So I got out. Um and then we drove around the section and uh he was like 30 yards off the road. So I actually had a camera with me and I got out and I took a picture of him and he's actually the background of my desktop right now. So <laughs> it was one of the things to be reminded, like, you know, like you can get so close to these animals and just watching them be themselves. It was huge. And I, you know, I, I'd say that outside of, you know, some of the harvest, the t- couple harvests, that would probably be my favorite moment. Just being that close to one and not even having my hand, you know, finger on the trigger. Cause I knew it wasn't going to happen. Just sitting there watching them it was great yeah a shot shot of a different
2: kind
1: if you will
3: yes
2: (laughs) yeah I love that well we always like to preach that like so much goes into having a successful hunt outside of the harvest you know and as hunters sometimes from outside of the hunting community there might be the negative connotation that we're just out there to shoot animals and it's so much more than that it's about connecting with the land connecting with the resource and um, just feeling for one moment that we're kind of part of that that area, that landscape, and can get a glimpse into things you wouldn't otherwise see. So I love that story, Jenny. I think that's really powerful.
1: Thank you. So, Jenny, I'm I'm pretty sure I already know the answer to this, but um, we got to ask: Are you going out this fall?
3: So my father-in-law drew a muzzleloader tag. I'm debating him getting an archery tag myself. I think my husband was going to do it. So. I'm for sure I'm going with him. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to uh, pull out the archery tag or not. Um, Part of that, initially, um, last year, I'm like, yep, I'm buying an archery tag. Every year in between, I don't draw. And that was my intentions this year when he drew, because we had a feeling he would draw. But I am like six months pregnant now. And so crawling on my belly might not work. (laughs) I'm going to go out. um, But my hunting experience is going to be little bit different (laughs) (laughs) congratulations um
1: i laugh because uh julia and i can totally attest to uh to where you are and and tana's kind of lived vicariously through us so uh uh, we, we all understand some of the adaptations that's what i'll refer to it as uh to enable to still get out and enjoy the outdoors um even while pregnant, so that's that's super exciting to hear.
0: and we had the episode hunting while you're pregnant, so there you go. Go back and listen to our past episodes.
2: We need like a hunting while pregnant wall of fame on our Facebook page where we post pictures of these guys. <laughs> True. <Yeah.
0: laughs> so excited to hear. Okay, so we like to talk a lot about food on this podcast. It's our love. It's a it's a need. It's a desire. So. Tana and Rachel, I have to know, have you tried antelope or have you tried pronghorn meat before?
2: I haven't gotten the opportunity. No, I've All heard right. it, have- that it's like, you have to handle it. Like most game meats, if, as long as it's handled well, it tastes really
1: good. Is that right?
0: Yes. Yes. You're exactly right. How about you, Rachel? Have you tried it?
1: yeah um so Megan actually drew a antelope tag for Wyoming a couple of years ago and so I was a lucky I luckily got to live vicariously through her and eat some of uh, they made antelope sticks and they're stunningly amazing so yeah. I highly recommend it
0: and tan is exactly right like there is it's just this weird thing that if you don't handle the harvested animal uh, almost delicately or correctly that it will bring on a different taste or flavor to it. And that's, I've actually witnessed that myself where I've had an antelope where it was probably like shot on the run and then just kept running for a while and then and dropped and then drugged through the field versus one that was um, hit instantly, dropped, deboned pretty immediately. And it's just so ironic how handled and cared for at the time of harvest can really make the meat tastes so much different and it is. It's it's a delicious game meat. Jenny, what what do you have to say about that?
3: I guess I'll first start off by just saying um pronghorn is my favorite meat, even that's just a happy accident <laughs> being my favorite animal. Um, you know, I just I love it in every dish. I love, I've enjoyed every way it's been prepared. Um, I'll admit I've never like eaten antelope maybe from the sagebrush sea out in Wyoming um supposedly diet could play into that I don't know but you know definitely my experience when it comes to all game meat though is yeah proper care you know uh, you know immediately after the, the harvest you know I prefer to get things off the bone right away you know I don't like hanging I don't like hanging meat you know the only time if I would hunt during the, say the rifle deer season where or even the pronghorn season you have to go get it checked in first um but other than that i Goes It goes home and it gets deboned right away. And pronghorn especially, um, I don't know if I wanna focus on that now or not, but well, first off, when you shoot, when you walk up to you're like, oh, this is smaller than I thought. <laughs> like they look like a big deer, but they're actually smaller than a deer. And you're like, okay, you know, there's some ground shrinkage there. They smell weird. They don't have a good smell to them. Um, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> no wonder people think they taste bad because they smell kind of horrible at times. Um, but what, what we found is as long as you, once you get the hide off, it's all in that hide. And then um, just take very care of getting the hide off, getting the meat exposed. And then the smell seems to kind of disappear. And another thing with pronghorn, especially, um, uh, and this is something we didn't know until, you know, we shot one of the first, one of the first, you know, that my husband and I shot together, we had to drag it on the ground for a wise, and then we flipped it over and all the hair was gone. Um, their hair is super coarse, super fine. It falls out really easily. And so if you have any desire to preserve the hide, whether you want to do a taxidermy mount or try to keep the hide, you have to take great care from the moment it drops the ground on what to do with that. So you know, call up your taxidermist or a couple of taxidermists ahead of time to be like, What's, what are their tips? Um, and then What makes it easier to instead of just dragging things on the ground is if you get a sled, you put things in the sled and you can drag it back out to your vehicle real easily. Shoot it, get, you know, get it field dressed right away and then get it back to a gambrel, get it off the bone right away, and then put the meat on ice as quickly as possible. And then unfortunate, you know, we have a meat grinder and a stuffer. We do all the processing ourselves. So we make the brats, the sticks. The hamburger, all of it ourselves. And so I can see from, okay, the moment it was in the field to the moment it gets in my, on my kitchen table, exactly, you know, how clean everything is trimming, you know, trimming off pieces of fat, whatever. Yeah. You really want to go as far as you can. I know, I not know everyone has the capabilities or the desire to process the meat themselves, but at the very least get it off the bone and on ice as soon as possible. Good
2: tips. Thanks, Jenny. So I got to ask then what is your favorite antelope dish?
3: My favorite dish, oh boy, I might, go, I might go with the classic here. I just like when you, uh, the back straps, grilling those up wrapped in bacon with a cream cheese jalapeno sauce drizzled over it. Have mercy. People like to, Some people like to stuff stuff it. Um, if you kind of drizzle it on top, then all your cream cheese doesn't melt away and fall away in the grill. <laughs> but the other thing I think in general, what I like about antelope meat is I like how it smells while you're cooking it. Like when you're browning the hamburger. Um, I just like how it smells. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you do the broths or sticks, those are pretty good. So Jenny, I mean, can
2: you describe how the smell is different from like browning beef? Is it more like sagey, earthy smelling or what What about it's different?
3: I wouldn't, at least what I smelled wasn't really sagey. It was probably a little bit more of a an earthy kind of smell to it. It even smelled different than like cooking deer even. There's a very distinct, subtle difference there. And then my favorite part of game meat in general is just when you brown the hamburger there is no fat and grease to drain off you can just throw your spaghetti sauce right on top and (laughs) and roll
1: I gotta say when when she started Jenny when you started talking I was like well clearly it's any meal that she's eating currently right (laughs) and then you go like quick take a right and get Grilled with jalapeno, cre- like hello. That sounds amazing. So, uh, anytime you're making it and you want to share, uh, Tana, julia and I are absolutely available for a, for a <laughs> dinner party. So uh, just let us know. But oh, yeah. as we uh, as we wrap up here, what uh, what words of wisdom uh, do you have for any ladies wanting to try pronghorn hunting? I know I know Kansas has a season in the western slope. I know Nebraska here in Iowa maybe we just dream of going west to uh to find pronghorn options but what do you what kind of words of wisdoms do you have for the ladies
3: um I'd say you know if you if you really want to go pronghorn hunting just make it happen and I mean I know there's different ways you can go about it you know maybe you want to go hire a guide maybe you want to tag team with a friend like um, or you want to just do it on your own I mean that's that's totally cool too I mean you're going to learn the most by going out on your own or with you know someone else who's new, but and I, I would say this when it comes to any sort of outdoor pursuit is just buy, just go out, buy that tag, or start putting in preference points for whatever state you have a desire in, and then now you have it in hand. It's like okay, now it's time to make make it happen. Just just do it. It's super intimidating. I know it's going to be super intimidating. It's still intimidating, and I, you know, I might know a little bit about it, but you're not. You're never going to feel like you're an expert. You're always going to feel like you don't know what you're doing, but uh, it'll come together. And I would say pronghorn hunting compared to a lot of the other big game hunting is uh, very humbling, you know, cause you're going to, you're going to mess up a lot. They're going to run away from you a lot, but, but you're going to find a connection to the earth. I feel in a way that's different than, than what you experience in other pursuits. Um, I mean, you're literally face down in the, on the earth, <laughs> on the dirt. So um, yeah, I just say buy that tag or put in that preference point and make it happen.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Jenny, for this great conversation, inspirational messages for us females, us ladies to get out there and and try hunting and pronghorn hunting in general. So uh, thank you for all that. Before we officially wrap up, those of you that follow us on Facebook Seeing a couple weeks ago that there was a contest on there uh, to win some She Goes Outdoors gear and some Shooting Month gear, and so I know there was a few of you that were anxiously waiting for that announcement. And I wanted, we wanted to do it here on the podcast so that we can announce it on the podcast. And before we post it on Facebook to make sure we're grabbing everyone's ears and that you don't miss it. So because we had three ladies that did a shout out on our Facebook, I want to make sure we all three of them win a package and, and we get it sent out to them. So Karen, Elaine, and Carmelita, you are the three winners of the She Goes Outdoor packages. I will be reaching out to you on Facebook and grabbing your addresses so that we can get that gear sent to you. So we appreciate your support and listening to the podcast and following us on Facebook. Tana, wrap us up.
2: Absolutely. Well, congrats to all of our winners. We appreciate everything you guys do for us. A big thank you to Jenny. It's been such a great conversation to have you on to talk about pronghorns and pronghorn hunting. I've learned so much and we definitely need to indoctrinate you into our Pregnant Hunting Women's Hall of Fame. Way to go, Jenny. <laughs> awesome. Well, we've loved having you on. Um, Once again, you guys, be sure to follow us and subscribe to our podcast. That really helps us understand who we're reaching and make sure that you guys get updates and announcements as to when our podcasts are coming out, especially recently with our schedules being a little bit crazy and we've uh, kind of fallen away from our typical schedule. Subscribing will really help you stay in touch with us and know exactly when we're putting new episodes out. So click that subscribe button, like us on Facebook, and share us with your friends. We really want to get out there and reach as many women as possible. Also, if you guys have any specific questions, either for Jenny about this episode or for any of us about past or future episodes that you'd like to see, reach out to us anytime through Facebook at She Goes Outdoors, and we'd love to answer any of your questions, put you in touch with Jenny, or consider your thoughts for future episodes. So um, with that, thank you all for joining us, and a huge shout out to Jenny, and uh, we'll see you outdoors.